0: You are now tuned in to the Herbal Hour. This week we talk about yoga philosophy, functional nutrition, how to select which foods are right for you, and what the Yoga Sutras by Padanjali really are talking about. We speak about a quote in it that's quite interesting. Padanjali says, Yoga is the cessation of the movements of the mind. Then there is abiding in the seer's own form. Join me and Jordan of The Living Kitchen As we discuss this, she is a functional nutritionist and she has a lot to share with us today. How are you doing today, Jordan?
1: I'm great, I'm truly great.
0: Awesome, so can you tell uh, us a little bit about what kind of work uh, you're doing these days?
1: Um, For work, I am a nutritionist and that means I work with people to assess their food needs, their nutrient needs. So if they have a chronic condition, I would help them get on the right track and teach them the skills that they need. Um, I am a longtime yoga teacher mm-hmm. and a longtime yogi. First, um, I've been practicing yoga since my late teens, so going on 20 years, and I teach people how to breathe and move mm-hmm. and Help them access their mind field through the practice.
0: Mm. So you started doing yoga 20 years ago. Do you remember what made you interested in this study?
1: I am not totally sure what it was. It was something to do. My younger sister and I took like a six-week community college class of yoga. And the teacher was like a 70 or 80 year old woman who was a dancer Mm -hmm. and her in her energy was just really kind and gentle and she you know had a very specific way of instructing but it wasn't the classes actually it was how I felt after like there was space around me like I could be free And I wasn't naturally good at the things that she was saying or telling us to do. I wasn't like the yogi in my body, as Mm -hmm. you would think. But I was able to rest and be at ease after practice. Mm. And that was really what kept me coming back for more.
0: Yeah, meditation and awareness practices are not easy for anyone who's tried it. And I hear again and again people say, oh, I can't meditate because, you know, I start having thoughts and I get distracted. And to those people I say, that's precisely the point. It is that, like, realization that what they call the monkey minds is the natural state of the minds. Not in the metaphysical sense. I know Buddhist tradition talks about the natural state of the minds. But the kind of... uh, instinctual and reflex and unconscious aspect of the mind is that is these thought patterns and Mm -hmm. of course they're going to distract you from meditation because they distract us from life actually in many cases so um it's definitely it's a practice
1: it is a practice and that's probably the biggest like returning factor of my practice is to observe those patterns and to return to a state of choice with them. Mm-hmm. How do I interact with them? Mm-hmm. What do I do with them? These things that come up um, and you know, how do I carry on living my life mm. like while I have these disruptions or happenings inside of myself?
0: Mm. So you teach uh, yoga classes, right?
1: I do teach yoga classes.
0: What is your uh, approach for transmitting uh, that information uh, beyond just the postures? A lot of times, when people think of Mm -hmm. yoga, they think of you know the asanas, uh, asanas, um, which are the different movements and the postures that you make. uh, Whereas the deep tradition of yoga, uh, from the actual uh, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, it's uh, a tradition. Of meditation, a tradition of awareness, a tradition of enlightenment, essentially, that was developed into um, a formulaic science. Um, and a lot of that has been lost when it got kind of carried over into popular culture. So what's your approach for transmitting that?
1: I try to not explain it. Mm. I really try to... Mm reduce my words and give clear instructions Mm -hmm. so that people can feel comfortable and at ease Mm. and begin to just observe themselves Mm -hmm. and not necessarily use my instruction as their entryway into Mm -hmm. their self. But I really try to um, offer the students that come, the yogis that come into the class, like a beneficial practice that would give them a self-awareness for Mm -hmm. that moment. Mm -hmm. And I try to keep it simple. I try to just be kind in my energy and try to use my experiences that I have in my body and my mind as a way to relate. Mm. So there's a lot of empathy and Mm. understanding. Um, And then... You know, just being there to be a support and encouragement for them to continue on Mm. throughout the practice. Mm. If I have a sixty-minute class to teach, I can only say so many words, and it wouldn't do anyone a service to like spitfire anything. (laughs) You people come in overwhelmed. People need to just be held in sacred space, Mm. and so that's really the beginning point for any. Person that comes in mm. this sacred space. What does that space look like? And what is my words, my touch, or my mm. practice going to be for them? It's really simple.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense to me from an uh, education point of view. Um, a very insightful thing I heard about what makes a good educator is that they don't teach people. What to think. Hmm. They teach people how to think. Mm-hmm. So uh, in application of learning something like yoga, which is based on this deep philosophy, um, how to teach someone to come to that understanding themselves rather than teaching them, this is what the understanding looks like. Um, and a lot of a lot of what would be called spirituality and mysticism is that, in my experience, are things that are said but have not been experienced and are kind of taken as um, granted knowledge. But then when you actually do experience something like, hey, look at this (laughs)
1: little... Yeah, the cat is (laughs) there.
0: When you do actually experience these what are called like mystical states of no-minds, I mean, they're indescribable and they make everything seem so much like book knowledge when they're actually experienced so what are your experiences with yoga what are some kind of pivotal experiences of maybe deep relaxation you had like why do yoga basically is the question
1: well it's something to do
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) like
1: that is for sure there is something to do Mm. and so Mm. for me As somebody who is experiencing, you know, the aftermath of trauma Mm. as a young adult um, and anxiety as just a person developing in this world, like I needed something to do with my energy Mm. and a disciplined practice really offered me the kind of repetition that I could come into a flow state Mm. and I could actually be natural and watch myself over time Mm -hmm. as you know I sat in a posture and you know watched my energy be whether I was struggling with myself whether you know I was having things come up in my life I could observe where I was and it became a very orienting practice to knowing myself,
2: mm.
1: and knowing the tone and texture of who I am in various states. And that's not to say that like I would never had anxiety after developing a practice, but it gave me a refuge mm. to, and a place to be. And all of those other physical things, like being strong enough, being healthy enough, knowing my body, those are all secondary to what the practice was doing for mm. my mind and my alignment to my being.
0: Mm. So you found it to be uh, kind of help um, for just improving the quality of your, of your life.
1: Definitely overall improvement, quality of life. Mm. Um, definitely an outlet for energy and um, like a lasting practice mm. that w- that's really given mm. me... Um, you know a wide variety of abilities
2: mm-hmm.
1: one of the things that is really important to me is that like my practice I came from a very disciplined philosophy where I practiced so much of the same thing that when my body couldn't do that mm-hmm. whether it was through either one of my pregnancies or after the pregnancies Or when I had trauma and couldn't move physically, Mm -hmm. I still practiced lying down, somatic movements, Mm. really gentle, really, really still mostly and using my mind's eye Mm. to move for me. Mm. And that helped me to reconnect with my body Mm. in a way where I could rebuild.
0: What does your practice look like now? Like how often are you doing yoga on like a weekly basis? A daily basis.
1: Yeah, right now I am like a three or four times a week practitioner mm-hmm. which is really great for a single parent. Mm-hmm. Like I really work hard for those three or four yeah. times a week. I um and I practice from the Ashtanga yoga sequence, mm-hmm. which is an active yoga sequence. It's very active. Mm. And it depends on what part of my cycle I am in, whether I'm like high intensity or inversions or more restful mm. and I allow myself to be at that time mm. I allow myself to explore and be
2: mm.
1: and then um, I on other days I might go for a walk in the woods mm. I might you know at different times a year I might need more action I might do some exercise class with a friend like a HIIT class mm. or something mm. for fun mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I might be lying down on the floor doing therapeutic ball rolling um, mm-hmm. just to work out the kinks mm-hmm. so that's my personal practice mm. a lot of breath work, a lot of awareness
0: any tips for people that uh, are kind of interested in yoga maybe they've done it one time but they haven't developed you know, a routine around it and they would like to because they're interested in what yoga is and what kind of the benefits you know it's the the fact that yoga is good for your health is has been repeated ad nauseum um yes and it's true
1: yes and those benefits are subtle and they're like an after shock (laughs) almost because what actually happens Mm. in a yoga class is a lot of work Mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of work and discipline to show up consistently and so for anyone who is exploring the idea of practicing yoga or they'd like to try something different, Like my advice is to be consistent. Mm. Whether that's one or two times a week or three mm. times a week, be consistent and commit to it for a certain amount of time. If mm-hmm. you could commit to twice a week for a month, that would be amazing because you would have those intervals of reflection mm. and you would be able to start to see yourself over that time period Mm. and there's a lot of trust involved in going into a yoga class because these days yoga could be anything Mm -hmm. you don't know even like the most experienced yogi could walk into a class and really not know because there's so many forms or contemporary kinds of yoga Mm.
0: what are some of your uh, favorite traditions of Yoga practice. Yoga practice. Yeah.
1: I. I it, one of my favorite traditions is the imagination, is mm. creativity. Mm. A lot of the yoga postures have these names animal names firefly, mm-hmm. dragonfly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, scorpion, mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so when we weave in this play into the work, like I feel playful. Mm. And I like to use my imagination to embody, you know, an animal leaping or whatever. Mm. Um, I like to really embody the space of my body, mm. send my energy to fill my body and like really be aware of the sensations of my body when I'm practicing whether that's ease or tension, whatever it is that comes up, I really like to just be with it and fill my space. Mm.
0: So, when you're doing uh, like cat pose or these, mm-hmm. uh, are you imagining that you're uh, a cat? Are you like visualizing cats? Are you I, trying to feel like the energy of the animal or what? Yeah. Because I've, I've never heard of this. It's a fascinating a way of doing <laughs> yoga. It definitely intrigues me and I would like to try it like that.
1: Well, that. Yeah, so like dragonfly, Tt Bastana posture is like a is a balancing posture. It's mm-hmm. complicated. You'd have to have some body awareness to do it. Mm-hmm. You're balancing with the hands down, the legs are in the air, and so it's not that I visualize the actual dragonfly, <laughs> but like just allowing myself to be part of nature.
2: Mm.
1: And at times in the practice, if I need vibrancy or a leap, I will imagine like. A jaguar ready to pounce mm. with intention. Mm. You know, a jaguar wouldn't be stalking its prey and aimless. A jaguar is going to use its energy for food or right. something successful. Yeah, exactly. It's it could be play, but
0: very active, uh, strong energy.
1: Yeah, there's intention there.
0: So we were uh, both looking through the Yoga Sutras, mm-hmm. and we found this um, this quote that is very interesting. I'd like to discuss it. Yeah, so the quote is I believe it was from the first book uh, the second and third uh, sections and it goes like this yoga is the cessation of the movements of the mind. then there is abiding in the seer's own form
2: mm-hmm.
0: so what, what do you think that means? let's yes. break this apart because I think um, we both mentioned the fact that this is like the kind of gem that encapsulates all of the purpose of yoga. And it seems like it's kind of a simple sentence, uh, although it, it is very enigmatic yes. of what it could mean.
1: The first Yoga Sutra mm-hmm. is, here begins the practice of yoga. Mm-hmm. So we're just setting the stage. Mm-hmm. And then we're observing the fluctuations of the mind, and maybe stopping them
2: mm-hmm.
1: or letting them settle Mm -hmm. and then the seer abides in its own form Mm. and so these things link together Um, the seer would be who is doing the observance who is observing this Mm. and you might say i am i would say i am i'm observing my own form my own form is life in action life Mm. moving And I always think about my own... The seer is like having this thread or an anchoring to a bigger life force Mm. that's deeper than me. It might come through me. Um, You know, in the Bible, it says like God created man or humans and it's his own form. Mm. And so we come back to, we're weaving back to this like it's bigger than us it's life itself it's God Mm. like we're connected through our own beings
0: that's a that's a beautiful link there Uh, I hadn't even thought that but uh, when God creates uh, humanity in uh, in their image that implies that that is still within us like we are still that form so I think So the first sentence is really hard to understand, I think, for a Westerner, Mm -hmm. right? Because, like, the cessation of the movements of the mind. Well, why would we want to stop the movements of the mind? And here, I believe what they mean by the movements of the mind is all the stuff that goes in our minds, you know, like, what we're going to eat for dinner, what we're going to do later, what um, happened yesterday... Like that annoying thing that Stacy said to us. That like I can't believe she said that. Stacey. Like why would she say that? Like come on, Stacy, why you gotta say things like that? Or like you know, and we get into these mm-hmm. these patterns and these are kind of these movements or uh, obscurations of uh, the natural pristine state of the mind, which is um, thoughtless. Um, and that's that's part of the difficulty of meditation is. Someone will try meditation for, you know, a little period of time, maybe try it once or a few days in a row and they're like, I can't get my mind to stop. This doesn't work. And it's like the mind has been going, according to these traditions, since beginningless time. So it's not exactly like you're going to sit down and I want to practice and suddenly cure all of the, the unnecessary movement of the mind. So it's a very long process. And then the second the second then there's abiding in the seer's own form it kind of gives me like a visual where it's like this is the formula to what might be called i don't know enlightenment or something first the movements of the mind relax so the current calms down then the water becomes clear now you can see your own true nature whatever that is uh beyond you know you as jordan or me as bogdan Beyond these kind of ideas Because those are just movements of the mind I could have been called Nate for example <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, But I wasn't So that's what I'm going by So I think there's uh, there's a lot to it And then kind of um, It's expanded on in the rest of the book Is well, like, Well how do you stop the mind And then the answer is yoga and meditation That's how you stop the unnecessary movement of the mind So that you can figure out Like what is this Yes, reality that we live in and in our how minds. to
1: interact when mm-hmm. life happens mm-hmm. because life continues to happen and we continue to bounce around and bump into people and experiences mm-hmm. and ourselves. Mm. And I, you touched on something that really like I feel like there's this um, interesting dynamic of mm. what we're willing to call ourselves. Mm. I am. If someone says... What's your name? And you say, I am Bogdan. Mm. I, are you? I'm like, that is your name.
0: It, it seems impossible, actually, to be mm-hmm. anything. Except for... Be whatever you are.
1: Be the breath. Be life moving.
0: Mm. Be well, that seems like it's a process of identification. Mm-hmm. Because we don't usually think, like, I am the hand. But, like, when you meditate on, like, the sensation of hands, like, Mm -hmm. and you say, this is my hand, you are the hand. Like, you are, it seems like you are whatever you put attention to. So, if you put attention to your mind, then you are the mind. If you put attention to the ego, then you are the ego. If you put attention to the body, then you are the body. But then, who is it that puts attention on things?
1: Well, and what do you do when suffering happens? Mm. Because it's so nice to like think about all these things, but like we're really just trying to have a life, yeah, and survive our lives, yeah, and you know, more than that, we're trying to excel, and right? Be the best. Thrive and enjoy and thrive.
0: life, have fulfillment mm-hmm. as well.
1: Yeah, and the um, the third sutra, chapter three, mm. talks exactly about that. Um, you know that you embody embodiment of these different qualities mm. of kindness, compassion mm. you know and um, different qualities of maybe there's all kinds of things that it talks about but it, it, essentially embodiment, mm. putting your mind on something and becoming it
0: I think the uh, disidentification with what is not us is one of the most Profound experiences that one uh, can have or understanding that one can come to about the nature of how we exist and how our mind works. So that's one of the things that really, uh, really shocked me in a positive way. After doing uh, meditation and practicing it, having this like insight one time in a meditation where I realized I'm not thinking. It's not me thinking. Thoughts Thoughts are occurring and I'm observing them. But I'm actually not creating them and I'm not blocking them. They're just happening. It's almost like you're just like watching the example given as you're watching like a cloud pass in the sky. Like you're not moving the cloud. But we th- we'd like to talk about thoughts as if we move them. And then that's where you get into all this. Oh, I should think more positively. It's like, first of all, like you're not the one thinking like it's just a process that's occurring. It is based on everything that's occurred in your life. The activities of the day, habits, etc. Uh, we do have. I, I believe we have input into it. Like if you repeat, "I love myself," and you believe it, then eventually your thoughts become that automatically. The thoughts are kind of like a broken record of whatever we say most to ourselves, um, yeah. but they're not us. And I think that's a big step away from suffering. Is when you realize that the story of suffering and that the woe is me is just a phenomenon that you're observing and what, once you get even a little bit of, of distance from that my life is so bad or like I'm sad you realize like it's actually kind of comical it's like whose life is bad like I'm just observing a thought that's happening like it's not it's an interesting thing that has happened to us with language I think we've become quite yes. trapped in our own language
1: well and you're talking about a little bit of stepping back Mm -hmm. and looking at a broader spectrum right and Mm self-orienting and if you're continually orienting and anchoring yourself to the fluctuations of your mind these thoughts and experiences that are coming through like yes those are very orienting but it's it can be very narrow and it can consume you and um you, an anxiety attack is a really good one because it consumes you and takes over and like hijacks your whole system. And then you're having the chemicals of mm-hmm. fear and panic and anxiety. Mm-hmm. You're creating this environment inside of yourself, and your perception be, can can easily become tainted to mm-hmm. whatever focus your anxiety has.
0: Mm. I think anxiety attacks have a great lesson to teach us. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: There's this saying, what you resist persists. Mm. And um, I was speaking to this about... um, I was speaking about this with someone else that actually from like a psychiatric perspective to actually diagnose someone with anxiety, uh, like a panic disorder, one of the key features of it is that they're afraid of it happening. Mm. That's one of the most key features... And I think it's because of this. If an experience happens and that's very negative, you want to avoid it happening. But those experiences are not under our control. That's very scary in and of itself. And when they begin happening, you seek to resist it. And then the feedback loop. You're resisting with thoughts, something that's occurring in thoughts. And all that's happening is the mind is becoming more and more riled up. And I've actually had this experience before. So I've only, at least as far as I'm aware, I've only really had maybe one anxiety attack in my whole life. Thankfully. I'm you're I've blessed. been I've been blessed. It was pretty it was pretty bad, and I understand like that like feeling like you're gonna die kind of thing. Like you feel like the world is kinda you're being like uh, Suppressed and kind of squashed by like the universe, and like going into like a dark place, and you can't find any way out. And it's this very intense, catastrophic internal experience. Um, but after that, I began recognizing the signs that like it might be coming up again or something. And what I realized is that the second I felt that anxiety, I would become afraid and I would try to repress it, I would try to suppress it, and then the anxiety would start building. But what I realized is if at the exact moment you feel the fear of it and you just go "Ah," and you just relax and like don't allow the mind to go down that path and like not by suppressing what it's doing, but just being like, I'm going to let it happen. Ironically, it doesn't happen because there's no there's no resistance that that first force is kicked up and then it it's like um, it's like a fire without oxygen. it sparks and you get afraid of the spark, but then that sustained fear and energy is what actually fuels it to become this thing. Whereas it's really just a spark. It's really just a little trigger and then where you put your mind is like what happens with it. So I find that very um, fascinating in terms of that.
1: Yeah, this, what you're talking about weaves right back into some of the ways to practice yoga. Mm. Um, because when you're, for instance, doing like a one-legged balancing pose and you have one leg in the air and you're about to lose your balance, Mm. you can grip and become rigid Mm. and most likely you're going to just topple over. And
0: that's the instinct though. The instinct is is to do that.
1: Yeah, so, Mm -hmm. you you know, I experienced this. What happens when you soften and allow? And even Mm -hmm. if you do fall out, like the softening and allowing, often it has stopped me so many times from falling out of, the, of a posture, but it also has stopped me from just gripping unnecessarily to resist the fear mm. of what will happen next. And likely falling out is of a posture or falling down or having anxious thoughts or having fear come up in your life isn't the worst thing. To
0: happen, right? There's this uh, stoic exercise that I really like uh, from stoic philosophy. It was a, a Greek uh, branch of philosophy that was very based around how do you deal with the hardship and the struggles of life, and they had certain exercises they would do, and one of them is you you look at what you're afraid of and you play it out completely. Mm-hmm. You think about what the worst case scenario is and really paints like a very intricate picture of it so if you're afraid of falling for example in like a yoga posture it's like you imagine yourself falling and you imagine what's the worst thing that could happen if i fall oh i hurt my arm oh okay then i can't go to work oh well then i get some time at home or something like that or you go through to the end of it and you realize hey this isn't actually as scary as i thought it would be and like 99 percent of those things we're afraid of actually never happened so like you solve the fear and but in the case that it does happen you're now prepared to. Yes. Uh, you have a feeling for what you're like oh I saw this coming and this is how I'm going to react now
1: I like that practice and I use that practice myself to challenge my thinking and to mm. challenge my perception mm-hmm. but the other side of that practice um, is to hold space for the optimal reality to mm. play out mm. like to look at both ends of that spectrum right. what would happen if my fears manifested right well what would happen if my hopes manifested hopes and imagination manifest uh-huh. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. cats
0: really go cats first of all cats love curtains i don't know what it is about curtains but they love they're little fuzzies
1: we got some cat action <laughs>
0: <laughs> the cat uh, exists in a no mind state there's um there's a story that i posted on uh on Instagram. Uh, It comes from this old Zen uh, story. There was this black cat and he would, he was the cat of a Zen master. And the Zen master, every day he would go to the temple and he would meditate. Uh, And the cat would always come with him and like sit next to him and just like sit there. You know how cats sit like in their like meditative posture. And he did that every single day like on the, on the clock um, to the point where everyone in the monastery knew who this cat was, and like, oh, it's that cat that comes around. Um, apparently, this is a true story. So, eventually, the, the master uh, passed away. They died, they had a, a burial, and everything like that. Um, but the cat, every, every day at the same time, would come there and he would sit in the master's uh, spot and continue with the meditation. Um, the people at the monastery were incredibly amazed by this fact. How does this cat know what time to come? Why does he still keep coming without his master? Is he meditating? What, what purpose does he do this for? Um, but anyway, that story is a great enigma and it's one of the reasons why uh, early Zen temples, they cats were the only animals actually allowed in the monasteries and they were actually welcomed. So they're that quite meditative uh, creatures, but they didn't have curtains in monasteries, <laughs> probably. So I think they probably would have been like, "Hey, sir, <laughs> there's people meditating here." <laughs> so, um, so yeah, what do you think is the purpose of yoga for you?
1: For me, mm. yoga creates uh, a like a thread, mm. a, like a continuous thread throughout mm. my life. Mm. Yoga is a philosophy that teaches me again and again about my place, my orientation Mm. in life. Um, And there's a lot of humility in dealing with your textural self. How do you feel today? What actions are you willing to take? Mm. What actions are you willing to commit to that <laughs> are not Christ. based on your feelings?
0: He's really, he just ran his head into the table. Mm-hmm.
1: The cats are chasing each other it's now. Sorry continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have some
0: kitten warfare going on around here.
1: Yes, we got some <laughs> playful cats. <laughs> it's, it's so appropriate because the cats bring in so much magic into life. Mm-hmm, absolutely so I Mm -hmm. I practice but practicing I know for me like yes practicing means often it means getting on my mat and doing some breathing and moving together but I know that if I wasn't able to do that because at times when I wasn't able to do that I continue to practice Mm -hmm. practice observing my mind practice you know, bringing in the qualities of equanimity into myself, mm. and um, bringing in the qualities of compassion
0: mm.
1: and not uh, judgment mm-hmm. into myself.
0: We were talking previously about the idea of karma.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'd like to open up a discussion about uh, about karma and yeah. what your view of it is, and how the concept could be useful for for yeah. life because it's a big aspect of all of Eastern philosophy and yogic philosophy, the idea of karma and breaking the chain of karma and becoming enlightened is a key, a key thing in it.
1: Yes. Karma is action. Mm. What actions are we taking? Mm. When to act? What karma did we come in with because of our lineage or our early experiences and where are we willing to invest our action, mm. and what actions are karma free? These are all really good questions, because we, I don't necessarily, I don't associate karma with the what comes around goes around. Mm-hmm. That I'm gonna like invest in my karmic bank and hope that I get to cash out my pay my karma bank.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I. Believe in karma as you know, knowing when to act mm. and having enough of the anchor from myself to life, mm. and so you could call that intuition or wisdom. To know when to be still mm. and know when to take action, mm. and so that means that a lot of those things in in the mind, the observances would need to be settled.
2: Mm.
1: Because if you're taking actions from an anxious place or a fear based place, Mm. like I wouldn't say for sure that the outcome would be something based on those fears, but I know in my experience when I have taken actions from fear, the result has been more suffering, Mm. more distance between where Mm. I want, where I'd like to be
0: when we're in those negative states of mind we can't see reality clearly yeah and if you can't see reality clearly you can't act clearly and if you can't act clearly then your results are kind of a roll of the die it might work out well or it might not but without seeing clearly there's no way to take a proper action so yoga is a a wide concept in indian philosophy Uh, It includes a lot of things and it includes a lot of things beyond just postures and what is thought of. I know there's um, different, they call it different paths of the yogi. Um, There's jana yoga. It's like J-N-A-N-A with, yeah, which is the yoga of like understanding or knowledge, uh, the Greek word gnosis, Um, this knowledge, our word too, uh, which is weird because it's K-N. It just shows that original uh, origin. That's the path of enlightenment through understanding. Understanding the mind, through doing meditative practices. But there's a branch called karma yoga. I don't know if you've heard of that. But it's it literally is the yoga of action. Meaning you find uh, enlightenment through action. And through this practice of what we were talking about before. There's a saying in the Bhagavad Gita that we are allowed and we have a right ...to our actions... ...but not to the fruits of our actions. We... ...all we're given is our... ...present moment in our action. And when we expect certain things to happen... ...we miss the point... uh, ...essentially. Because either we expected something good... ...and we get it... ...and then we want more of it... ...and then we suffer because we can't get it again. Or we expected something good... ...and something bad happens... ...and we doubly suffer... ...because we suffer... We suffer that the bad thing happens and we suffer that also our expectation wasn't come true. And it's like, ah, oh, it should have been like, isn't isn't that like a common source of, like how many times, have you ever missed like a bus and you were like angry? Like, ah, oh, it should have, you know, came at this time and like all these like shoulds. Every time like one says like a should, that's like an expectation that has not been met. And often that's like actually a bigger source of suffering than the actual bad thing. And like any should means like you don't you don't accept life as it is. Like you would rather be some other way. And that's a fundamental way to just suffer because you're wanting something that isn't. Yes. Oh, yeah. oh he's just eating his little bowl.
1: Uh, yes. Yes. So I'm not totally sure what like the specific philosophy to Karma mm-hmm. Yoga is, mm-hmm. but I think of Karma Yoga as like investing in humanitarian efforts or just doing some good-natured thing without the expectation that it's coming back to you as whatever, like that. You we like you said, um, like we don't own the results right. of our actions. Mm-hmm. All we can do is continually be present and give of ourselves, Mm -hmm. be devoted to life, use our code of ethics, which the Yoga Sutras describe, use our orientation, which we practice, our continual orientation, where where am I in space, Mm. where am I in my own self, Mm. energetically, mentally, Mm. where am I in the universe mm-hmm. on this earth mm-hmm. you know like orient continually orienting and continually being devoted mm-hmm. and so I could see that being like a great way to live life is just continually giving mm.
0: to be of uh, of service to uh, to humanity and that, that makes sense as a way to um, to have peace and understanding in life it's not only you know the yogi who goes off into the cave and meditates and finds wisdom but the, you know, Gandhi or Mother Teresa who Mm -hmm. finds the wisdom of life through meaningful action. Um, And to me, karma yoga is very much tied to the idea of uh, like uh, being a spiritual warrior in in some sense because the path of the warrior is always a path of action because... um, (laughs) What
1: is it? The little bowl. the cat's pushing
0: the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> He's practicing his his path of of action. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think of it as the path of the warrior because the warrior is always has to make quick decisions because everything is so quick and everything is so life and death. The, the meaning can expand uh, beyond just the context of warfare, but... Into daily life, um, being afraid of something but still advancing, uh, having fears but still like doing the right thing in the face of it, uh, courageousness, all these are, are – courage is always based around action. So being courageous in your life is kind of like a uh, karma yoga uh, aspect where you might know what the right thing to do is but you're afraid of the consequence. Again, afraid of the results when all that we have is our action and is the action true to us? And if it's true to us, then we should act that way. But that's difficult, obviously.
1: It's difficult. And, you know, these are great things to think about. But how does it play out in everyday life when, you know, most everybody is in a war with themselves mm-hmm. in a war and they're losing too in a war of being overstimulated mm-hmm. in a war of trying to keep up with our culture and mm-hmm. consumerism mm-hmm. in a war with competitive ideas you know we're not good enough because social media shows something mm-hmm. fancy and different
0: Right. Well, that's that's the interesting thing about social media. We were speaking about this before. Um, social media shows what we would like people to see. So it it's kind of in that sense, it's kind of illusory. Uh, that's the way I view it is that it's like a creation.
1: Mm-hmm. Like if you
0: have some certain goal with social media, uh, like you want to promote your like business or you want to show people what you're up to, you want to show them your life um but when people compare themselves to other people i think that's the path of suffering i've heard the the wise statement that you should always compete not against others but against yourself of yesterday
1: that's one of the biggest things that yoga that i've spoken about that like there's a continuum of practice and so this is you know yoga isn't a competitive sport, we're not comparing ourselves to somebody else's body or someone else's movement ability or flexibility. You're just looking at yourself.
0: You're comparing uh, just to yourself of yesterday,
1: and it doesn't it wouldn't even yeah. need to be a judgmental comparison. Just observing yesterday, I felt great in my practice. Maybe I was caffeinated and had a lot of energy. <laughs> Today, it certainly helps. Yeah. And, you know, today I don't feel as great or mm-hmm. as mobile because I'm underslept or malnourished today. Mm-hmm. And so just watching over time.
0: Right. And I think uh, over time having those little improvements, they go a very uh, far way because in general, if you compare, there in any field of study or uh, action or practice, there's always going to be someone who's better than you at it. And... If that makes you feel bad and makes you not want to do it, because, oh, what's what's the use? So you created a, a, a company, a brand called Living Kitchen.
1: Mm-hmm. What
0: is the Living Kitchen? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Um, the Living Kitchen is my personal philosophy um, that is based around healing your your body, your life, um, through nourishment. And so nourishment comes in many forms, but everybody needs to eat. Mm-hmm. And so the kitchen, to me, is like the living altar or the hearth of the home where you know we put our sacred objects, our sacred plants, on the altar. We know where they mm-hmm. came from. We put great intention into how we're preparing them and how we're ingesting them. And often we do it together. Mm. Um, we sit at a table together, or even alone, we're together mm. in spirit with the plants and animals that mm. we're ingesting.
0: What's the living aspect of it? Why the living kitchen?
1: It To be alive is to be dynamic, mm. is to be able to <laughs> adapt, to life as it happens, and and that means that in the winter I eat warm food.
2: Mm.
1: I warm my body with food. I do practices that keep me warm. I wear socks. Mm.
2: Yeah,
1: you know, <laughs> in the summer mm. I might eat you know less cooked food. I might eat you know more seasonal food. To be alive is to be dynamic and to adapt. Mm. And so, as we move through life we are going to eat. We need continuous nourishment. We need continuous sleep. And so we always are coming back to the kitchen. We're always coming back with practices mm. in mind. We might leave the kitchen and do a movement practice. We have yoga, but we need to nourish our practice and eat for fuel, mm. eat for um, for energy, and then eat for rest mm. and have practices at rest. Mm. And so... Um, I love this philosophy because it really is about weaving these threads of life that's already happening into our food and into what we ingest. We're nourishing ourselves through our practices and through our food. And at times when life is challenging, and I feel emotional talking about it because life is challenging... We have so many transitions, Mm. and we often forget to take the time or care about the food that we're eating. Mm. And it's so easy to get something to put in your body that's less than food.
0: Yeah, it's so easy to just, you know, um, and I catch myself doing this all the time. Just, you know, you are scrolling through the internet or reading something or watching something, like a movie, and you're eating, and it's... Mm-hmm. You know, there it, for most people, I think, um, actually making a meal, sitting down and just eating it is l- like an amazing experience that yes. is very rare that yes. maybe happens, you know, for some great celebration. But then, you know, people are still talking at the table and everything, but really like eating and tasting your food. That's a practice in and of itself, it seems. That
1: is a practice in and of itself. And it is unrealistic that everybody's going to stop their fast paced (laughs) life and start doing this. It is a
0: little bit luxurious to like sit down and eat mm -hmm. for an hour. It's like.
1: That is a luxury. (laughs) But if we start to think about what we're ingesting and not Mm -hmm. just food, Mm -hmm. if we're thinking about what we're ingesting and thinking about, you know, we're ingesting all the time and how we're adapting to these transitions of life. And what kind of intention that we're Mm. putting into it. Mm. I think that that is where real transformation begins. Mm. And it's okay to eat food that's available. We don't all have the means to buy, Mm. you know, Mm. the highest end of food. Mm. But how do we use what we have and make it intentional, make it delicious, Mm. make it accessible for everyday life? Mm. Like there is one or two steps that any person could take from where they are to enhance and intentionalize their quality of life.
0: Mm-hmm. How is uh, spirituality a part of your uh, like nutrition work?
1: I, my spirituality, my philosophy of life is very much akin to the yoga philosophy because mm-hmm. that's where I have developed myself. Mm-hmm. But I was raised from very spiritual and devotional um, parents and my entire family. And, you know, time together, witnessing each other is a sacred practice. And we're creating sacred space. When I work with an individual or with a group as a nutritionist or a yoga teacher, the main thing that I'm doing is creating a container of sacred space mm. to be and to witness. And to just share whatever comes up and so whether i'm dealing with somebody who has anxiety as a nutritionist or whether i'm dealing with somebody who has diabetes like the biggest thing that i can do for them is to be there for them and bring whatever i have my experience with herbs my understanding of Mm -hmm. food my insight into like creative cooking or my insight into like how to you know rehab your body Mm -hmm. (laughs) or build strength like Mm -hmm. It's all coming from this sharing experience Mm. and the intention that's behind that. Mm. And that is probably the biggest gift Mm. that you could give anybody.
0: Mm. That's beautiful. So nutrition is a field of a million ideas. Some person says eggs are uh, great for you. Another person Mm. says eggs are terrible. Some people say you know grass-fed dairy is so good for you other people say dairy will kill you immediately red meat is terrible paleo say no red meat from a good source is great so how do you navigate these very confusing waters of nutrition when it's yes there's a lack of agreement I think on basic things
1: Like, I am not a one-stop-shop nutritionist. Mm -hmm. I um, am a functional nutritionist, which Mm -hmm. means that I'm going to be looking for the root causes to Mm -hmm. the conditions. Mm -hmm. And so I love to work with individuals that, you know, that, that means that I'm going to help you discover the foods that you like and discover and bring my understanding of your condition or where you'd like to be. We'll break it down. There's no one size plate for everybody. And, you know, we all have a different genetic makeup. And our genetic makeups involve, like, our ancestral foods. And so everyone has a different ancestral food. Mm. You're from the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. My ancestors are from Portugal. Mm-hmm. Those are different locations and different minerals, different whole, it's different, completely different. And right. so how do we adapt that to live in this world with grocery stores <laughs> and shared meals? Yeah, And it's absolutely. complex. And so it's a process. It's, at best, it's a process. Yeah, it
0: is. And I, I wonder, too, like, you know, everybody and their mother recommends, you know, eating quinoa and kale. But is that really right for everyone based on... I mean, where they grew up, where they were born, what their ancestors ate. So I always wonder if there's some kind of wisdom in ancestral foods, like for your Mm -hmm. um, uh, genetic type of person. Like if you, uh, for example, like me growing up, um, living the first four years of my life, and my parents were also born in Ukraine, um, there's like a very certain kind of diet that's had and it's been traditional for a long time. and. Um, certain foods from within that diet are foods that I like also, like that I didn't even really necessarily uh, know about.
1: <laughs> EO? Stop shaking your piggy bank. <laughs> <laughs> Just for a few more minutes, we're wrapping up.
0: He's, he's making money, he's, he's shaking <laughs> he's, up his he's, money, he's
1: making it rain.
0: <laughs> That's what's up. So, um, um, yeah.
1: ancestral foods. But yeah,
0: ancestral foods. Is there any legitimacy to that you think, or should we recommend kale to everybody?
1: No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> um, there is wisdom into knowing your your genes and understanding because um, I won't go into all the. I don't. We don't need to go into all the details of this versus that, mm-hmm. but. To know, basically, that, you know, if you're Northern European, maybe potatoes are a better starch for you than rice.
0: rice. Yeah, or bread or Mm -hmm. something like that.
1: Yeah. So there is some specific insights that you can glean from knowing. your, And it might make Mm -hmm. sense to your condition that you might actually be lactose intolerant and it's your genetic makeup. Right, and and that is
0: the case in certain parts of the world where they yes. didn't um, uh, have livestock and they didn't develop those um,
1: the enzymes the enzymes to needed. break down the exactly. proteins. Yeah, and you could be chronic, you could be suffering with chronic asthma or skin conditions, and really, it could just be that your body was not designed right. to ingest calories. And dairy.
0: that's just the ones that we know of. I mean, how many other kind of food triggers exist that we're not even aware of because you know it's just such a part of our diet
1: and so when I work with somebody um, as a nutritionist we go through those things and often you know I see somebody who wants more energy or has these underlying kind of subclinical conditions which means that they're not in the hospital they're not suffering to the point of needing you know entire care from a doctor they're able to live their life mostly functioning on their own but have some things they need to work on Mm. and so um or they've been to a doctor and just need a little guidance Mm. when i work with somebody we we talk about you know the things that they're dealing with and the foods that they're eating Mm. food journaling is often a part of it which isn't really the You know, it's an observation practice. not always fun.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it seems that um, your approach to nutrition comes from, like, this kind of yogic uh, way. And, um, yeah, I just want to thank you for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking about uh, yogic philosophy, spirituality, nutrition in a more meaningful way. It's definitely inspired me a little bit more to pay more attention to cooking because I've always kind of liked it but I you know we were talking before uh, about the fact of like recipes and how you know like recipes are like kind of the killer of the soul of cooking in my view it's because it's like follow this and that and it's this whole formulaic thing and it's like it's too much effort I'm just gonna you know order out or whatever
1: one of my biggest things that I have been able to Mm -hmm. master in my life um, is to make anything
0: just kind of like see what ingredients you have and kind of toss it together yes yeah,
1: So make food taste just good, make up stuff to make up stuff to be like creative that. to just put things together to be bold to have success to have failure and to make my own recipes i write recipes for clients and mm. share them pretty freely um But that's one of the biggest things that I love to teach people is how to cook with Mm. and without recipes, how to um, improvise, Mm. how to, you know, do the sweep Mm -hmm. through your kitchen and gather Mm. and then create.
0: How to cook versus what to cook.
1: Yes. Love it. That's,
0: uh, that's That's a strong theme. So for our listeners... Uh, how can they contact you? How can they get in touch with you? Website, Instagram? Um,
1: uh, my website is the thelivingkitchen.net. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I am on Instagram, thelivingkitchen. And um, those are, has my contact information. And I'm definitely available for working with clients and students of yoga and for collaboration on projects. I love to work with people, and that is my passion. Part of my passion, and I'm very excited about that.
0: Awesome. Thank well, you. thank you, uh, thank you again for being on the show. I appreciate uh, you. your yogic wisdom, and I always love talking about philosophy. So, thank you so much. Thank Thanks, Jordan. Yes. There you have it. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed uh, filming it and recording it. Put me in a nice meditative space, and I hope it did for you as well. We talked a lot of great topics in yoga and nutrition and kind of the deeper spiritual aspects of that. Uh, Next week, we have an episode planned with... Dr. Locke Chandler. He is a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist. And we talk all about natural cancer treatments, how he uh, approaches cancer patients, how he became a naturopathic physician, his story, his path, naturopathic philosophy. It's a really great episode. I hope you guys tune in next week. And um, check out our website. It's uh, ktherbs.com. The blog is on there. Some Herbal extracts that I create are on there as well for you guys to check out. If you have any questions or suggestions or you have this amazing topic that you'd like us to talk about or you know of some guest, that would be great for the show that's in the Oregon area. Contact me at info at um, Thanks again for listening, guys. I really appreciate you and I appreciate doing this podcast and really getting out all this holistic health info. Um, it's really a passion of mine. Thank you so much. Bye.